It's the Occult Mr. Podcast, where we talk about the mysteries hidden behind Mickey. To the Occult Disney Podcast, where we open up the hood of the Mickey Mouse's Mirthmobile and see what's under, what secrets lie inside. Sorry, I just, I just winged that intro. I don't know. I was, I was, I was experimenting. I was trying something new. This is Matt here <laughs> with me today's Thomas Gorens, the paranoid American. Howdy. Hey, that's me. And I was, yeah, I like that intro though. We could work on some cool ones like. <laughs> Tonight we're gonna sacrifice the sacred mouse under the, the full moon or something. Oh yeah, rock on. Okay, I can do that. <laughs> but um, yeah, today I we're, we're definitely from the occult perspective. We got a lot to chew on. It's a uh, Sleeping Beauty, which lots. You know, last one was like Lady and the Tramp. We had a little bit of trouble uh, putting the lens on that one because well, it's it's basically a talking animal movie. So. <laughs> It's gonna ironically, it's gonna come in helpful today though, because there's gonna be a couple nods back to Lady in the Tram specifically, which will oh, be yeah. well worth it. Yeah, because the production of these movies were like all intertwined. Um right. it seems Sleeping Beauty, it's either Sleeping Beauty or Black Cauldron that hold the record for longest Disney production. Um I, th- I think they're about the same uh, in the end. So because uh, Sleeping Beauty got I mean production was rolling in like fifty two, fifty three, somewhere along there. Yeah, the, um, the script production started in 51, so it was a, a long process for yeah, sure. Yeah, we can kind of from there. And then there's like a series of directors, which I found weird, because uh, the first guy had a heart attack. and Then they'd bring in a director, and he'd do like a few sequences. Uh, like one of the nine old men did the um, just the forest sequences. He was a director of that. And then production just kind of slowed down for a few years. And when they got going again, he, w- he wasn't directing anymore. So we basically have like, five directors on this movie which is kind of weird i i guess i don't understand enough about how how animation works but uh (laughs) i mean maybe you just grinded them all the way down to the bone yeah and this seems to be one where walt disney himself was equally interested and uninterested in this movie like it seems he really knew he had to put it like a core curve in animation, you know, a spectacle but at the same time you know disneyland and, and the tv show seem to have been like his main focuses at the same time where you get the weird synergy of um you know sleeping beauty's castle showing up at disneyland three and a half years before the movie was even released (laughs) it's also just overwhelming to think about all the projects that walt had going on as this one guy and you know of course he had the the beginnings of this global conglomerate starting to form around him but he still was like a mortal person here on the planet earth that was overseeing you know like i we could say arguably the best walt disney animation that they ever kind of produced was sort of uh sleeping beauty there's a strong argument that I, that i can make here but he's also got all these theme parks going on and all of the other you know business related stuff that's going on that he has his hands in because he's a control freak so i mean sometimes i get overwhelmed when you know i've got like an appointment and like one other thing to do in addition to my normal job but this guy uh you know he was just non-stop working on crazy things 
No, I mean, if, if I had been in that time and place, my, my focus would have been on Disneyland. I mean, I obsess over the theme parks now, so <laughs> it makes sense. Um, but yeah, I, I guess we'll just start a little bit with animation style. This is the second um, kind of widescreen Disney movie. With where When we were doing Lady and Tramp, I think we were like, it's nice, but it didn't really need to be. Where Sleeping Beauty definitely needs to be. Um, I feel like, yeah, the overall package is probably Disney's best, but we are missing the uh, almost inhumanly possible to do in the first place details that you see in, say, Fantasia or Snow White. So there, there's a little bit of artistry lacking, I guess, in that just that kind of for beginner's luck, I guess. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, th I think we can debate on this one a little bit because I, I find Sleeping Beauty to be intensely detailed maybe even beyond some of the aspects of snow white i think snow white had very detailed matte paintings and background paintings um, although the animations itself specifically the rotoscoping and the characters they were a little bit flat for their time it was groundbreaking you know but if you compare them frame by frame um, maybe some of the background paintings um, are you know detailed in different ways but the animation itself and the rotoscoping and the capturing of all the the different sort of flow and, and perspectives, I think it's far superior in Sleeping Beauty. Like, it's not yeah. even a close comparison. Well, that's what I'm saying. As a package, I think Sleeping Beauty probably is the the height of Disney animation. But just if you want to take specific animation, I, I always think of the water and Fantasia as being, like, basically number one because that's just insane. Um, although, I was, sometimes there's animation we don't even know about. I just read a production book uh, space odyssey about the making in 2001 not realizing that they had a bunch of basically interns like having to animate the stars in that movie so they spent <laughs> months just like making little splotches you know and like they probably even... didn't even get their name anywhere near the credits either yeah that's that's right i mean even <laughs> come on that movie even the people who really did the effects uh ended up with the final credit of you know special effects directing and conceived by stanley kubrick you know so <laughs> that that was a little bit of a raw one he pulled there i guess but and this one's uh, a little bit interesting too talking about the animation style and just the aesthetics in general is that there was i think it was like a behind the scenes or like one of those dvd commentaries but i, I was watching it and they mentioned that walt was very disappointed in a few of his previous uh productions specifically alice in wonderland i think um, that the original concept art that was done by Mary Blair was so very like striking and it had such a distinct style to it. But by the time it got all the way through the art directors and all the way through the animators and then, you know, ended up on the, the final film reel, it didn't really capture that same sort of like artistic flair that I guess Mary Blair had originally captured. And that happened, I think, two or three times and Walt didn't want that to happen on this particular film. And so he gave almost exclusive creative control over to uh, Evan Earl, I believe. And once this guy takes over, anytime there was like a dispute on like, hey, I don't think it should look like this. Walt would just immediately side with this one guy every time um, because he was so myopic and so laser focused on making sure that that original concept art made its way all the way through to the final product and it didn't kind of get lost in all the adaptation of the process and he actually did a really good job of it and there was a, this whole interview about where they found these things called the um the hunt of the unicorn or the unicorn tapestries 
which were these old tapestries from the actual 1500s, I believe. And they essentially remade that same aesthetic, but animated it and turned it into cartoons. And if you look at some of the frames in Sleeping Beauty side by side by some of those unicorn tapestries, um, like you can, it's undeniable in the uh, the likenesses that they were able to capture and then kind of bring it to life. So, so it's just noteworthy in that this is one of the very rare and probably the the only last you know time that Walt gave this full creative control over to someone and sided with them on almost every dispute that had kind of come up. So that one was was interesting to me, and it also explains why this one does have a decent, consistent style despite going through five different directors. Yeah, um, although apparently it, it really did piss off the animators because they. Oh yeah, <laughs> the, the 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 what we see on screen, of course, is great. So I guess in this case, Walt was right, uh, or or Earl was right. But mm-hmm. yeah, they they basically felt like kind of robbed of their own creativity making it. Um, well, we have the Juron. Uh, I can't say this guy's name, Juronomini. Anyway, there the, the the quote is that Earl's paintings lack the mood and a lot of things. All that beautiful detail in the trees, the bark, and all that. That's all well and good, but who the hell is going to look at that? The backgrounds became more important than the animation. He'd made them more like Christmas <laughs> cards. So <laughs> Christmas well, and, cards can be nice. <laughs> well, and Christmas cards were actually some of the uh, original inspirations for that concept work that I mentioned that um, Mary Blair had worked on. Like Walt loved that style. And and this one in particular, Sleeping Beauty, they did capture that and like you said i think the the proof is in the pudding a little bit so the animators i believe won a couple small little um scuffles like there was originally the three fates um like the three fairies were all going to look almost identical and just kind of have different like colored dresses and the animators were able to push back on that a little bit and then uh, they added a little bit more characters Uh, there was like the the drinking bard uh at one of the scenes when the two kings are discussing the the wife or you know the the princess and the prince and how they're going to get together and as they're doing this the bard like keeps drinking more and more wine and gets really drunk that one was like in particular something that the the animators were able to just do because they kind of owned that particular character and that was the sort of silly cartooniness that they were trying to inject this entire time which was sort of juxtaposing and clashing with earl's you know sort of more serious vision but i I think that they were paired up so perfectly like because you've got a little bit of that goofy cartooniness, but then you also have like a very serious medieval looking aesthetic that kind of gets carried through the entire movie. Yeah, um, Earl left Disney short shortly before they finished this. So he wasn't there for like the final. So the I guess the animators got in a bit of the last laugh, as it said, um, they had Earl's background paintings like softened and diluted a little bit from the what it says is distinct medieval texture. Uh, which I'm not, I guess that's more like the tapestry look. So um, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I guess that's a good compromise though. Cause again, n- nothing's wrong with looking at this movie. So. <laughs> and there, there's a couple other cool notes too, that a guy, Mark Davis did some of the character design and he created the characters. I mean, no one person designs the characters, but he's credited with doing a lot of the initial concept development and just developing the silhouettes and the process you go through on making like balanced characters. And he made it with um, the princess and with Maleficent, you know, Aurora and Maleficent and was able to capture that like interesting dynamic between the two. And then he went on and made um, the 101 Dalmatians and he did Cruella de Vil. 
So he and it's that was kind of noteworthy to me because the same guy that designed both those characters and both of those characters are the main ones that are kind of getting this like revamp where they were the good guys all along, you know, like the modern movies. And that's Ben Maleficent and Cruella DeVille. Um, I guess it's partly because this movie had such a long production that this sort of thing is bound to happen. But the people that worked on it are kind of interesting too. Apparently, um, while Warner had shut down their animation for a few years, Chuck Jones actually did work on this movie, which is pretty wild to think about. And um, since uh, Don Bluth was a, a basically an, an intern, maybe animating stars for this movie, so nothing particularly creative, <laughs> but he was there. So it's it's just interesting to have all those people working on the same movie. <laughs> Honestly, I, I don't know if, if he had anything to do with the scene. Um, I think it was Mark Davis that also worked on that final scene between the, the prince and maleficent as the dragon but i swear that dragon had some don bluth dna uh somewhere in it maybe he was uh, shouting from the back of the room or something <laughs> they, they just you know got stuck in their subconscious or whatever um and another cool uh note about that that really insane sort of fight sequence that, that comes at the end of the movie is that it was essentially designed by uh, mark davis and he was a fighter pilot in world war ii and he likened like the action sequences to sort of him being in like a dogfight where things just like happen so fast that you can't even think about it. Uh, where like the prince is, you know, getting attacked and it looks like he's about to die and it happens so quickly. But the way that you described that was based on his experience as a fighter pilot in the world war. Did you um, ever make it to Tokyo Disney? No, I did not. Okay. They have in the, in their castle, they have an actual attraction, which was, um, facing the dragon and, and they'd get a kid from the audience to you know like it might have been somewhere no, i think it was based on sleeping beauty but where they have to battle the dragon it was truly like the most traumatizing disney attraction ever because <laughs> it was like you're in this dank basement there's like loud sharp noises coming around there's a scary dragon <laughs> animatronic and your kids were screaming it, 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 even as an adult doing it i was like yeah this is pretty creepy uh <laughs> well the the, uh the florida version had um an the alien encounter i believe which was an amazing ride but that was also deemed just beyond scary way more scary than the demographic was for the park but man (laughs) i don't know have you ever heard of it or or seen any videos on it the alien encounter i i yeah i've heard of it i think by the time i got to it is when they had like rethemed this a stitch to so yeah, kids would yeah, yeah. poop themselves in the theater <laughs> it, it was very similar but it had like these little speakers and it would it would seem like they were right behind you and you could feel it like breathing down your neck and it had a lot of like jump scare and um like flashing light kind of moments that people complained about so yeah lilo and stitch it was but it was a, an amazing experience that didn't feel at all uh that's something you'd find at disney world the one that got me the most i think it was honey i shrunk the audience is uh where they you know the seat kind of pokes you in the back it's like supposed to be a bee sting or something and then like every other time i i went to that attraction i'd just be like sitting up because i did not like getting punched (laughs) in the randomly punched in the back so (laughs) i I was at the edge of my seat because i didn't want to get punched in the back so (laughs) um we should really i guess start looking a little more closely at this one uh i mean the movie is just as far as content and everything because there's a lot to talk about um the one thing i guess in in production is there is an obvious similarity to snow white we have a sleeping princess uh or i guess snow white's like germany it's we're back in france like cinderella uh one of the 
criticisms was that Disney was kind of treading on ground they'd already done, which I think is still a little bit leveled at this film because um, while it is the technically the brilliant <laughs> film, it's it's sometimes not seen as the best one story wise, I guess. But there's a lot. Well, if if only those critics knew how the next fifty and sixty years would continue to develop and just reuse that same trope over and over, just in in different scenarios, right? Yeah, yeah, because they got to put Aurora in a pink dress, which she doesn't, and they you know they fight over the dress color as the animators mm-hmm. did, right? So in all of the promotional, she's always wearing the pink dress, so you can tell her apart from Cinderella, you know. <laughs> well, the Cinderella's got and- pink dress; they could switch their colors too if they want. And also, I think Walt maybe takes too much heat for this because it's not like uh, Disney or even the the Grimm's brothers were the ones that were regurgitating the same story. The story of Sleeping Beauty, I think, might be one of the oldest ones out of all the stories so far that, that Disney has kind of adapted. Grimm, Grimm did have their rendition of Sleeping Beauty, but the very first Sleeping Beauty could be as old as the 1200s, I think. Like It could be back as the 13th century, and it was part of... Uh, the book of 1000 and one nights like the same one that you know that that you're familiar with for a lot of other stories and it was maybe like two or three paragraphs long and it was very short and it was the, the exact same premise where a girl meets the prince but then she gets put under a spell by um, a witch and in, instead of being pricked by a finger on a spinning wheel it was like a flaxseed and she ends up getting like a flaxseed stuck under one of her fingernails or something like this and that knocks her out and she falls asleep until the prince goes to kisses her and then notices the flaxseed under her nail, removes it from under her nail, and then she wakes up. And this is like a very, very short story, but it dates all the way back to, you know, some people date it to like the ninth century, but it's no um, no later than the 13th century. So this is essentially the prototypal Sleeping Beauty. And then it gets readapted by the Germans. It gets readapted by the French, by the Italians. And I think the one that Walt essentially based it on was a French version that was based on an Italian version from the 1600s. Um, so again, it's not it's not like Walt, you know, copying himself over, although they decided that this was the thing that they wanted to do. But if also like Snow White was kind of a knockout of the park, Cinderella was sort of a knockout of the park. So why not do another princess story, especially compared to all the other movies they had kind of done that didn't have that same mass appeal, I guess, didn't have that same like knockout effect. So, uh, you know, again, like might makes right. The proof is in the pudding. This was sort of the right decision in this case. So the original one does have her meeting the prince beforehand. There are there are so many really weird variations of this story, man. Like I, I don't even know which ones we want to get into yeah. because some get really wild. But well, yeah, the, the the very original version is the girl. Um, sorry, I don't think she meets the prince first. I think that her dad basically consults with like the wise people of you know his castle, and they basically say, "Hey, your daughter's gonna go great, but when she turns of age, she's gonna get a flaxseed like behind her if she touches a flaxseed." Because he basically wishes out to the gods, "Oh gods, if I can have a daughter, even and it's such a weird thing. Like he almost plants 
um like the the detriment to him but he's like oh gods if i could just have the daughter even if she's like deathly you know allergic to flax seeds mm-hmm. that's fine just give me a daughter so of course he gets a daughter that's deathly allergic to flax seeds <laughs> so all the wise people are telling him like hey man when the you know your daughter uh, becomes 16 or basically the equivalent of puberty when your daughter hits puberty she's going to get a flax seed um you know caught somewhere on her and she's going to be poisoned by it and that's I mean, it's the exact same story. You just kind of shift flaxseed and the needle and mm. wise men into Maleficent, and there it is. Uh, no, I was just uh, thinking because I think Disney considered her meeting the prince first as to be their own, their own addition to the story. Because um, uh, again, I was asking which version because the one I was familiar with is she's sleeping for like the kingdom is actually sleeping for a hundred years which wouldn't make sense if she meets the prince beforehand. And and I came to this movie with that in mind, which, yeah, like. Well, the original, um, the original adaptation that sprouted after that 13th century version, the one that started coming around in like the 16 or 1700s, this one, it wasn't a prince. It was actually a king that was already married and he would come across Sleeping Beauty. Um, and he was so attracted to her that he just had his way with her while she was asleep. And there was no kissing and waking up and true love or anything. It was, you know, (laughs) he just had it. He was like, oh, wow, sleeping girl, super adorable, had his way with her. And then the wife finds out and the wife finds out that she gets pregnant. So she starts plotting against how she's going to, like, take out Sleeping Beauty and take out these kids. So she essentially, so Sleeping Beauty in these older versions does not waken from the kiss there's two variations one variation is that she has these children somehow she sleeps all the way through her own you know um she has like twins she has a boy and a girl i believe two twins and they represent like the sun and the moon because the original sleeping beauty story is kind of based on like these creation myths and she's sort of ishtar and and astarte and like the original fertility goddess and we'll get into some of this stuff but it but essentially um she she kind of represents this thing and her giving birth to these two twins one way that she wakes up is one of the babies is trying to suckle and it gets her finger instead of her nipple and it sucks the flax seed out from behind her fingernail and that's what wakes her up and in another variation it's kind of like that is that as the the two babies try to you know breastfeed on her that wakes her up and her maternal instincts kind of kick in and you know it's so in neither of those versions it's ever the kiss and in fact that was one of the not that walt did this i think in one of the later the the version that essentially got adapted by disney that guy softened it by taking out you know the rapey parts and sort of put in like a, a softer version of that yeah, I'm sitting here wondering if I've like Mandela affected this whole movie because before I watched it um, last week, in my mind, she didn't meet the prince first. 100 years did occur in the story, and the prince was basically like going off to on his own, like I have to prove myself or something and and check out this kingdom. So, like, just in, in the original stories, yeah, it's it's 100 years. Although in the in the very OG, there's no like she doesn't fall asleep for that long. It doesn't even really indicate. It just mentions that she goes into this like sleep that she has to be saved from. But in in the modern um stories and the grim, I believe it's 100 years. But in the movie, as soon as they start putting everyone to sleep, they're like, oh, wait, wake everyone back up. So it almost feels like it happens within the span of like a week, maybe. 
at least yeah, yeah. in the Disney movie. That's where I'm. That's where I'm saying it's either my fault. I fault high faulty mel- uh, memory can't talk either or 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 i can blame cern on changing the movie which is of course the option i'd like to choose <laughs> the, um, the, the berenstain bear sort of analogy. yeah 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 i just i had a very firm memory of that story and it's not like i've been out there like reading versions of sleeping beauty so i'm like how i'm sitting here wondering how i got that into my head because you say joseph campbell you say hero's journey first image that always comes to my mind is is the prince fighting dragon maleficent you know (laughs) and and um before we move on from some of that aspect too is that in the original stories where it's the wife that wants to get revenge and kill her and you know kill her kids um there's also a cannibalistic version of this where the way that she wants to kill the kids is by ordering her cook to turn them into a meal um and that version the cook decides not to and kind of like helps the kids escape but there it gets dark there's there's some very dark sort of themes that uh come up in the earlier versions of this one before it made its way and and actually an example of where grim aren't the ones that made something super dark it, it actually predates them i'm actually seeing here um I, I guess we'll talk about the music a little bit the sleep being based on Tchaikovsky because uh, last night I was like, oh, I, I have some CDs back there. Maybe I'll listen to some of the Tchaikovsky version, you know, when I go to bed. It's, it's three CDs long, so that didn't <laughs> happen. It's a really long ballet, apparently. But um, that that did catch me because I, I, again, I, I probably, probably the last time I saw Sleeping Beauty was uh, the first time it was released on DVD. So it's it's been a while. Um, and there's a guy that plays in orchestras. So I was like, well, oh, what, what, what a minute, you know, when the music starts. So it's like, Hey, there's ripping off Tchaikovsky. Oh no, they've based it on Tchaikovsky. Okay. That that's better. <laughs> I'm surprised. I'm surprised you didn't um, recognize that already, like from before, but I guess if you've only seen it once when it came out on DVD, but uh, there was a, an interview with Walt Disney himself around the production of this or around the release. And he mentions that, the original sort of DNA for this entire movie started with Tchaikovsky. Like it started with him listening to that music and saying, when we make this sleeping beauty movie, it needs to be an animated version of Tchaikovsky. So it's, it really did start at least according to Walt, that was the heart of sleeping beauty originally was Tchaikovsky and everything else followed that all the aesthetics and all of the, um, you know, the unicorn tapestries and everything else that kind of came secondary to this is an animated version of this Tchaikovsky. Like, yeah, I can go with that. I'm, I'm just looking at the CDs here to see if that's where I got the um, 100 years idea from, but uh, or, or where I got into my head. But I, it's actually mostly in, yeah, yeah, no, no, no clues to that. So, <laughs> but um, definitely makes it one of their classier scores. So, you, I mean, you can't really complain about the songs in this one. <laughs> Well, and you know, another reason why you can't complain about the songs is originally there were supposed to be five or six more sort of Broadway, you know, like every other Disney movie that had come before this one outside of Snow White. Um, And even Snow White had a couple, but like, you know, it didn't, I think it had a whole bunch that were originally animated. They even had animatics and storyboards, but at, at one of the last moments, Walt decided, no, we want this to be a little bit more serious and I want it to kind of stand as this artistic expression piece more so than like the predictable show tuny thing that comes with the soundtrack. And the one song that they ended up keeping was the, um, I mean, I'm already blanking on the name of the song, but the, 
a dream a dream or something or it came to me in a dream what is what's the name of it by you saying that i've now lost it hold on i think i still got my uh <laughs> i still got my my stuff up here uh once upon a dream once once upon a dream yeah so yeah so it was originally once upon a dream and then five and six other kind of like kitschy singy songy broadway um tunes and they got cut because they just weren't serious enough yeah because we see the uh the fairies uh failed cake right the one that's kind of falling off to the side and and that was actually the culmination of like a five minute song dance and giggle sequence uh similar to right and and that original <laughs> sequence was supposed to end with the cake exploding and this whole like this big you know cacophony of things happening and again it seemed to, to walt that this wasn't the tone that he was trying to set for this particular scene. So the cake almost falling over was almost like the crescendo of goofiness for that particular scene, especially compared to what the original animatics had. Yeah. I wonder if that like put audiences off a little bit at the time. Maybe, maybe they were expecting that because uh, sleeping beauty didn't immediately make its, um, its production costs back because it cost a lot of money. It was somewhat oh, successful. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. It was was not re-released during Walt Disney's lifetime, which I mean that's only like what seven years or whatever. But <laughs> and they also never did. They never really devoted that much resource to a production ever again. So it was sort of de facto the end of that particular era of dumping everything you had into the animation. Almost everything that came after this started to lighten up a little bit and take some extra shortcuts whereas this one for whatever reason they really decided not to take the the same shortcuts that they had in in other movies well, yeah it took them eight years <laughs> yeah, was, i guess we'd say seven and a half if we want to be nice but <laughs> yeah i mean the, the attention to detail is clear but apparently now it is uh with re-releases and video it is now the second most successful movie from 1959 so eventually it made a turnaround so i like it had to like seep into the public unconscious first you know and and then yeah you i mean it's, it it's only second to ben-hur that's the that was the number one movie of the release year so right right so it is kind of weird and it did seem like yeah they other than the fact that they built the castle you know before the movie came out disney did seem to mildly ignore this one for quite a while this was i believe the first big dvd release because they were just like hey this is great animation we no one's been thinking about it for the past 40 years and they also this movie they made extremely good use of the wide format because it was 70 millimeter horizontal on the reel and i think that the original frames that all the animators were working with they were used to working on typical notepads that you could just kind of like flip through that they had been working with for most of their adult careers and then this movie comes along and one of the animator interviews referred to it as working on cells the size of a bedsheet and trying to like flip through them. And then that was a little bit of a, a sort of a hyperbole of the animator at the time. But we weren't talking about the same traditional. And that's why there was so much detail in these two is that there were these huge, wide, you know, landscape um, panoramic pieces of paper and they would just pack them with details. And that was sort of a new thing. I mean, that was breaking a little bit of ground. Yeah, on, on television, this becomes like a travesty of a uh, pan and scan, basically. So, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> which is probably why that another reason that DVD release, which did include a pan and scan too, but while well, why and was... this was um, a stereo soundtrack too, which I think was the first Disney might have been one of the first 
uh, feature length animations that had like a full stereo orchestra track to go along with it. Apparently, so if he, if you saw the seventy millimeter like Cinerama or whatever presentation, it, it was actually six channels. Okay, that's that's probably what it was, and, and not just stereo, but it was almost you know uh, yeah. surround sound. If you saw the norm, you know, thirty five millimeter normal version, yeah, it was just stereo. But yeah, if you went to the Super Swank Roadshow version, you would get a uh, six channels which i guess fantasia tried that a little bit but on a much more like a uh, high five for the time but low five for even 1959 so <laughs> <laughs> and not to to miss that this one has the perfect length in my opinion of about just you know a little bit over 60 minutes run length once you take all the credits out and everything because we've talked about this before some movies you know get like two hours long somewhere some of them were like 50 minutes or something like that. This one, I think the total run length was like a minute and 10 or uh, an hour and 10 minutes. But outside those credits, it's almost like a very neat, just a full hour. The pacing's great. Everything like this. Um, so many of those different aspects, the removal of all those, the show tuny songs, um, you know, letting one particular guy, at least until the very end when he leaves, have just like ultimate dictator-esque kind of say, but it all culminated in, in a really great movie. Yeah. Um, it's like the, the Disney problem now of taking like a, you know, your 60 minute Pinocchio giving, deciding to remake it at like two and a half hours and then like taking out anything interesting. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, of course, uh, the, the live action one of this, I guess would be Maleficent, which I saw shortly after its release. And I, I remember liking that one. I didn't watch it again for this, but I do remember actually enjoying that one perfectly fine so how much of that do you remember i'm curious because i haven't i haven't seen that one yet um well we got a lot of jolie um it, it is one thing that surprised me is it actually is this story just with the uh perspective switch which actually technically should be changed from the good fairies to maleficent right but but see maleficent does some very evil things and again i haven't uh, i'm kind of looking forward to watching maleficent to see how they justify her position but she shows up uninvited to a party and <laughs> condemns a girl to death and then disappears so like how do you As spin one does. that into being like oh she was just misunderstood you know i she got shafted by the fairies earlier or something i don't remember of course it's angie and so she takes it starring, out on this, so. poor, this poor girl entering adulthood <laughs> she's like oh you got your period now you're gonna die and that's all yeah. because of these fairies you know pissed me off a while ago no i'm basically just on uh yeah I, unfortunately it's been like almost 10 years now so i'm just like i remember not hating that one uh that that and the jungle book are the only ones where i was like i guess these aren't too bad for the live action ones <laughs> um i i almost like want to hate i've heard so many bad things about the pinocchio one I'm, I'm i almost feel like I, maybe i do have to watch it <laughs> Well, I think yeah, of course. I mean, I've, train wreck it is. <laughs> have you ever seen the horror the horror movie uh, Pinocchio? I think it was like ninety eight or ninety nine or something. It's really bad, but it's something you have to watch. <laughs> yeah, Pinocchio is a weird one where every director feels like they have to do it, and they probably shouldn't. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, I I'm pretty sure you have a few interesting notes on this one. Getting into the 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 weirder parts, if you want, if I want to kick off part of that, yeah. Yeah, I don't even know where to start. I've my my notes are so scattered, but I'm just gonna kind of rapidly go through some, and and any that that you take affinity to, we'll just go on little tangents or something. But um, one one thing to point out is that she has multiple names in this. Um, so she's Aurora, she's Sleeping Beauty, she's Briar Rose, 
and then towards the end of the movie they all just kind of keep calling her rose as they're yeah like that that was her. mildly confusing <laughs> but that is what that is correct that's the name she would respond to at that point in time so it it is correct yeah it is correct <laughs> and these are all homages to different variations of you know who she was throughout these different stories that all have been adapted from um and the uh the briar rose essentially means prickly rose and you know she's trying to avoid pricking her finger on something so there's a lot of kind of like wordplay between the different things that happened to her and again those old versions it was she got a flax seed under her fingernail and that evolved into she was going to prick her finger on flax and then that just turned into like prick her finger on a needle because it's a little bit easier to correlate but it, it really ties all the way back to that briar rose name and pricking your finger on this like organic flower um and and some of the other cool aspects of this is that she's got the three fairy godmothers which and i'm saying fairy godmother they don't actually say that at all in the movie but that's kind of like what disney they do raise became. her you know <laughs> they do raise her and um but but they're essentially the three fates of um you know of greek mythology and so many other different cultures have the same kind of concept but one of the the sort of the cool um synchronicities that i noticed here is that when they make these decisions their names sort of betray um what their background is so for example it's flora fauna and merryweather and that, as we were talking about before this is sort of the retelling of the original creation myth especially with this this uh, female coming into age and then immediately giving birth to the moon and the sun and then having this like evil mother want to eat them and then they all kind of get resurrected and she comes back to life. It's sort of this resurrection fertility god story. So you've got flora, fauna and Merryweather, which is basically the three things that represent nature. You know, you've got plants, animals and the weather. Um, and another interesting aspect of this is that in the three fates, there's the spinner there's the allotter and then there's essentially death and there's there's a number of scenes in the movie that again like attribute these different sort of principles to the three different fairy godmothers so one of those examples is that um meriwether who's in charge of the weather she kind of represents the the death aspect and if you notice she's always pushing for magic she's the one that like wants to go and get the magic wands she's like um, sort of the one that that knows that magic is really what's going to help them all out the most and she can't not use it and that kind of represents that that uh, magic kind of process of like death and resurrection and so that was that's a really interesting aspect because because outside of the fertility goddess which is like Ishtar and Astarte and Easter um, the male counterpart to that is almost always a weather god it's going to be zeus with his lightning bolt it's going to be jupiter it's going to be um hadad like these were all rain gods and storm gods so um, th there's just so many correlations there the first draft of this interestingly had eight fairies uh, this includes maleficent as a fairy um right. so they, they went from eight which that's an interesting number, of course, uh, down to four. Uh, and their specific ideas apparently were the fairy of dreams, the fairy of the forest, the fairy of the elements, and the fairy of darkness, which, I mean, that doesn't like counteract what you're saying, just trying to add some detail and definition there. Well, and, and not just that, that's Walt Disney's version, but in, in not the original version, because again, that original version was very straightforward and it was just the king kind of consulted with his wise man and in some it's like wise women and they just kind of give him this rough idea oh something's going to happen to her there's not all these 
fairies and witches and things but in the later versions i think from like the the mid 1600s it starts to shift a little bit and at this point there's 12 different fairies <laughs> and um i think maleficent is going to be the 13th fairy but being the number 13 would have been unlucky so they decide not to include her because they don't want to invite this concept of bad luck onto their newborn daughter and then she gets wind of it and the and the 12 fairies and those um, older medieval versions that was a reference to the zodiac it was essentially again this is the creation story being retold it's death and resurrection and it's the weather meriwether flora fauna so again with meriwether you've got the 12 months that rotate around it's the sun you know dying and coming back to life um so so this entire theme just keeps popping up and it remains consistent throughout for sure, it's that thirteenth zodiac sign as well, isn't there? Slight, slightly under, I think. <laughs> well, well, I think in the uh, in that that version that I'm talking about, that had the zodiac. They all show up to the baby's christening or whatever, you know, when they're giving them um, Sleeping Beauty and Aurora, like all these presents, and they all have these like golden plates, and those golden plates are representing their different signs. And in, in addition to the golden plates, they kind of bestow upon her these different sort of like magical powers. I like how we add that, though, because the original just seems like a, a plea for antihistamine or something, you know, <laughs> <laughs> a cautionary allergy tale where, you know, we throw in some magic, some fairies and uh, some darkness. So it gets a little little in more interesting, I guess. Um, <laughs> well, and even in these medieval versions, we're still only talking like four paragraphs, the entire story. You know, we're not talking about a book at any point. I mean, let's be honest, if you're if you were writing this one out, it's you could whittle this down to a four paragraph thing because it's a very visual movie, right? I mean, what Aurora's character gets what like eighteen lines in the movie, or, or she's on screen for eighteen minutes, something like that. And uh, I mean, she's not in the movie that much. <laughs> yeah, in fact, the focus is really on the fairy godmothers for the most part, um, which that they have the uh, the most developed characters, I think, in the movie. And it's also interesting that this movie they're not really sidekicks uh they're they really are more main characters than they are supporting characters but in addition to that this is one of the first times in the disney movies that we don't have sidekicks uh, and we don't have b plots it's just the one plot of sleeping beauty like there's not these little like side missions going on just kind of like a minute because the prince unlike the uh last two movies with princes this this one does get a name and um they, I, I felt like they were playing the, his horse as a bit of a sidekick, you know, just just for about a minute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah, I can I'll give you that. <laughs> yeah, just that second of levity, I suppose. But um, and, and speaking of that horse, really quick, it it stood out to me because like the owl makes another appearance here, um, which was in Fox and the Hound. Like it starts developing this character that you're gonna see over and over in Disney movies. So it shows up, I think, in Fox and the Hound fleshed out pretty well it shows up again here in this movie looking almost identical and i Sword think the, the next stone. time it shows up yeah archimedes is gonna come up and it's it's really it's like the exact same owl i'm sure there's nuanced differences but i saw that same thing happening with the horse here and i don't remember exactly what movie i know el dorado i think had horses that look very similar to this style of horse um, i was thinking but, of but, tangled definitely i mean watching this movie now it, I d it didn't really occur to me how much like kind of sync there is with uh tangled you know uh i kind of love that though I, I love seeing like the birth of this very specific character whether it's the owl or the horse whatever and then how they just 
keep getting developed on over and over until they become like almost their own archetype. Chip it's, shows it's up if you're cool paying attention. Watch. <laughs> who who does? Chip. There's a oh yeah, chip looking <laughs> chipmunk. Or, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I I mean that's that's kind of a cool way to brand it though. I mean, especially when everything's analog. I don't think that's being lazy. So. <laughs> so what else? There's a couple other notes here. Um, one is that if we noticed in Cinderella, the the evil stepmother, she had her hair kind of up in like little horns, but they didn't go all the way in and make her look like ultra evil the same way that they kind of do with Maleficent, but all three of, of Maleficent, um, the evil mother in Cinderella and Chernobog, it's essentially the same character. Chernobog gets established first, you know, the black God, um, which ironically is also one of the, the animators that worked on that particular sequence uh, worked on a lot of the scenes in this movie, but um, we've got Maleficent as the personification of like, the Disney villain that wasn't Chernobog directly, but represented Chernobog in like a very nice sort of animated way. And that that's going to continue on. Like you're going to see Maleficent sort of takes the place of Chernobog in the Disney sort of pantheon as being the ultimate Satan, I guess. Like if you had to say mm-hmm. kind of how we have, you know, we've got Moloch and we've got Ball and we've got Satan and Lucifer and Leviathan. And, but d- depending on, how generalized you look at everything a lot of people are just like that's the devil or that's satan right so in my mind uh maleficent is sort of like the satan the devil the lucifer of the you know the disney pantheon well yeah again that's why the uh tokyo disney attraction was making children soil their pants because uh you were <laughs> it was like they they in their mind especially they're literally being sent to hell you know <laughs> that would have been that would be a pretty awesome like a like a chernobog fantasia ride where it's just like the all hallows night or the the witch's sabbath and you actually just go through it and fire comes out yeah i don't remember a specific name but yeah find a youtube video on that one because it is you, you can tell from the video it's pretty like definitely would terrify most people (laughs) um excuse me and and yeah i know my family like we had whenever fantasia came out on vhs is when we got fantasia so again i was probably transposing chernobog onto the end of this movie in my mind for years so i might have been slightly disappointed when i got that dvd because i was like expecting that which the dragon's fine don't get me wrong but (laughs) uh chernobog still does seem to like you said, they replaced him with Maleficent, more or less. But I still think I mean, that's the ultimate. Chernobog, like... I mean, Chernobog is an actual pagan, you know, demon god that people worship. Like that is the <laughs> real name and and sort of um, a great illustration version of him. But I think it was a little bit too on the nose for where Disney saw everything headed. Where you know, I don't know how how profitable and how like cuddly and marketable you can make the literal Chernobog versus <laughs> Maleficent, you know, that's kind of has like a, a more pleasing aesthetic to her. It's gotta be plush Ursula's out there. I'd, I'd see <laughs> that before a plush Maleficent. But <laughs> all the, all the legs would be a little creepy. I don't know if I'd want to plush with that many legs, but Hey, some kids like weird stuff. So, <laughs> so and there, there's a few uh, visual similarities I caught in this movie from the, from movies that came way after. And I don't know if any of these were intentional, but I just wanted to throw some out because um, that I didn't see them in other reviews and kind of like um, takes on this movie. One of them is that Maleficent's castle. As soon as I saw on screen, I was like, that's castle Ducula from count Ducula. 
and I had to pause it and I had to Google it. And sure enough, I mean, there's a little bit of variation, but you can almost lay Castle Ducula on top of Ma- uh, Maleficent's castle and it's the same thing. So I thought that was really, really cool. Um, and what else? Oh, the uh, her little like soiree of creatures that have little helmets and spikes and some have horns and stuff. Um, the ones that are looking for Sleeping Beauty, but they're idiots because they're still they're looking for a baby for 16 years and they never find her because, you know, she's like grown up or whatever. They look almost identical to the Jim Henson little creatures in Labyrinth, you know, the, the guys that work under um, the Labyrinth Master. And and I had to pull again a screen up and that one's not as one for one because it's, you know, puppets versus cartoons. Um, but man, the, the, the archetypes of the characters and just the silhouettes of some almost, you know, matched up perfectly. This, I mean, this is me mostly saying something silly, but actually it might have some of that subconscious, uh, impact. Like I said, right before we did this podcast, I had also done Avatar. So last night I was watching Sleeping Beauty and Avatar and while drifting off to sleep, I had like images of Aurora being, you know, uh, chased by like the, the, the horse monster things from Pandora, which works fine. <laughs> it's, you know, it's kind of the same thing in a way, like the minions in this movie and something like, well, you and, know, and those, uh, the minions in this movie too, um, they struck me as they visually look like some of the descriptions that Paracelsus made of what he called Paracelsian monsters. And if, if you're not familiar with Par- Paracelsus, he's sort of the, the great godfather of medicine he's the first one that realized the principle of toxicity and um of dilution that something in a high dose can kill you but in a smaller dose can help you he was kind of like one of the first people that was able to articulate that properly throughout the world but he had a lot of weird wacky ideas and one of his weird wacky ideas was that you could create a homunculus and if you allowed a homunculus to develop through maturity and a homunculus is basically like a little version of yourself. It's like a mini me that you can create in like a flask or something. But if you create a mini me and you let it grow into adulthood, it'll turn into what he called these Paracelsian monsters or he, he called them monsters. We call them Paracelsian monsters based on his name. And some of the descriptions of those monsters are kind of what these little creatures look like. So, I mean, it was almost impossible for me to not tie the, like a, almost an alchemical principle in here. Cause again, the original story is talking about, um, giving birth to twins that are the the sun and the moon and sa- having to sacrifice them only to be reborn and the 12 golden plates um, and these Paracelsian monsters like there is a deep alchemical probably Rosicrucian theme that's kind of persisting throughout this uh, this movie. And how do you make a homunculus? No, don't answer it now. It took me a while no. to do that <laughs> <Yeah>. podcast. <laughs> you could go hear that somewhere else if you want. <laughs> Very interesting, but took took me a few stops and listening to our podcast for a bit, then come that, back to it. <laughs> to be fair, that is a very particular way to make a homunculus. That's not what there's no universal agreement on that particular one, but I would say that ninety percent of homunculus recipes get X-rated towards the uh, the end of them. So, yeah, right on. That's the only way to do it. Um, I mean, just like well, making a normal person, it gets X-rated at a certain point, does it yeah. not? Well, yeah, earlier in that case. Um, <laughs> uh, what's next on your note then? Uh, let me see. So there's a couple cool just um, dynamics of magic, which is sort of obvious because they're actually using magic wands and casting spells. But it's just kind of cool in the movie, at least, 
Maleficent comes in and she puts this curse on Sleeping Beauty on Aurora. And after she leaves, one of the other fairies is able to sort of cast like an anti-magic spell. So she kind of converts that instead of you pricking your finger and dying, it's I'm going to you're going to prick your finger and go to sleep. And it's the order that actually makes sense here, because in the original version of these 12 Zodiacs showing up and then the 13th one being unlucky, Disney reinterprets that one as like the seven and Maleficent comes up. But Maleficent cuts one of the other um, fairies off in line, essentially, when she does her little spell. And it's sort of implying that if she had waited her turn and done it at the end, no one would have been able to reverse it. No one would have been able to do like a counter magic spell. So part of her being like too eager to cast her magic sort of bit her in the ass in the end. That was wait an line, folks. On it. Yeah, wait yeah, my, line. <laughs> my, my note for that was I bet she was about to give the gift of bath bombs before Maleficent showed up. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know uh, if you what else? Um, oh, sorry. I just had a thought jump out of my mind oh here we yeah. go we, when we were doing snow white um we definitely had the idea that she was actually casting spells and she could talk to the animals so aurora doesn't seem to quite be that deep in magic herself but she definitely has that same like nature connection maybe just because she lives in the woods i don't know <laughs> you know she so aurora in this movie is very much passive but magic happens to her and it happens around her and it maybe happens because of just being in proximity to her, but she very much in this, um, in this particular movie, she herself is not casting the magic, but she stands for magic because again, she is Ishtar and Easter. Um, and, and in a lot of the older versions of this tale, they, they actually link her directly to these old fertility goddesses. And it's that concept of, you know, winter comes and nature seemingly comes to a, a dead halt and you wonder, man, are, is the snow ever going to go away? And are my crops ever going to come back? Or are we just all going to starve to death? And then eventually the winter ends and the summer comes again. So it's she is just a retelling of the nature story. Um, but she herself is not causing any of this magic. Again, it's happening to her kind of as nature. And, th and there's a sort of an interesting nod to this where... Um, the man there's so many different ones that, that repurpose the story but in the 1650s version the medieval version there's a nod to this because they mentioned that the prince notices or the fairies tell the prince don't tell sleeping beauty that she's wearing her her great grandmother's dress and this is a, a sort of a nod that when she went to sleep it was the old pagan gods that ruled the earth and then a hundred years pass, and now that she's waking up, again, that hundred year version that you're mentioning, hundred years pass. Now when she wakes up, the world has evolved around her, and the world is now kind of like following Christ. You know, they're following these new monotheistic religions, and they've got rid of the old pagan religions. So her falling asleep and waking back up is also representative of shedding that old fertility goddess pagan uh, approach to things and like the more refined you know more civilized christian approach to it I, I guess it's the whole rip van winkle thing that appeals to me that if i do have something lacking from this movie it's like i do like that element a lot so i i wish it was here and it didn't seem like she just took a five minute nap but you know <laughs> I, f I feel like if they did that the exposition required now 
I mean, how much how you just went from eight years to ten years because have, of that have, extra five minutes, right? Oh yeah, you'd have to be making a different movie from the get go for sure. Uh, but the the Mandela effect thing that I keep calling out just in my mind that is how this movie rolls so uh, <laughs> yeah it is weird again I haven't been in the states for 12 years so whenever I do go back I'll have my own experience along those lines for sure <laughs> <laughs> so oh and there um so Aurora does do one thing I wouldn't call it a magic incantation but she says something and I made a note because it was like that doesn't really sound accurate at all and I tried to do some research and I think it was just written in this particular disney script but she says they say if you dream a thing more than once it's sure to come true and uh and it was just it sounded so silly that i had to write it down because no part of that or how i can read it does it ring true in any context <laughs> that that if you just dream about a thing more than once it's sure to come through come true i mean maybe law of attraction maybe the law of positive thinking mm. um but she's actually talking about she fell asleep and had a dream about a prince on more than one occasion. And because of that, it was guaranteed to happen to her, which is very wishful thinking. Um, so maybe this could be her putting her intentions out into the universe, right? So maybe that's part of her magic. But it, again, it feels like things are happening to her. Yeah. I don't know. I don't want to have last night's dream twice. Uh, again, this is maybe because I watched Sleeping Beauty and Avatar in conjunction with each other. So it's a. Uh... Just to tell my, it has imagery from both, so it's fun. But I was um <clears throat> going to see this Buddha on the other side of a pagoda, like a tall pagoda. But to get there, you had to like climb along the roof, you know, very precarious. Although I looked down at one point and weird for a dream, I was like, well, if I fell, it's really going to hurt. But I guess I wouldn't die. And I get there's a platform, there's a big like Buddha image. And then, and then they roll out a carpet, like medieval looking carpet. And, okay, you just walk down the stairs to get out of here. I was like, okay, that's weird. But that was like that was like a special service. Usually you have to go out the way you came, like and then scale the ceiling again. So I don't know. <laughs> I have weird dreams. I don't know. Maybe sign, you have to sign a waiver before you go into that one. No, not in the dream world. Uh, probably not in Japan, to be perfectly honest. Um we've we took my daughter a couple of times to the the ninja park up in the mountains and um yeah you got kids like climbing around on these precipices on trees i mean you could kill yourself in eight different ways there without a problem and they just let anyone roll in and do it <laughs> you, you just add the word extreme to the front of it and then do an upsell right yeah i say ninja ninja gets the everyone understands <laughs> yeah, that so. yeah you don't have to add extreme when you've already said ninja <laughs> that's the Amer that's the american version the extreme no, ninja park no, when we first took my daughter there, I posted it for my family and friends on Facebook, and I was like, the world's most dangerous amusement park. <laughs> and it doesn't I have think that, rides. I think there was a place in New Jersey that takes the cake on that oh, one. Oh, Action, action Park? Is that action, action Park, park? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. I know what that is. Yeah. <laughs> well, the thing is, people are careful at Ninja Mura, right? So I guess, mm -hmm. yeah. Like, I mean, you don't want to put two little kids up on there, but I think a lot of kids understand if i do this i'm gonna hurt myself yeah, it's the whole thing of doing it chanto in japan doing it the right way which sometimes can be very annoying but in cases like theme parks it's fantastic because yeah i mean disneyland tokyo disneyland see i mean people walking away they're they're well dressed there's no garbage they they don't have paint chipping there like ever it's crazy all the animatronics are working if they don't if you find something that isn't it will be the next day you know, talk to the there, Yeti there was at a, the, Animal Kingdom. 
there was a video I had seen recently that made me uh, think of that as you were mentioning it. And it was, you might know the context better than I, I do, because I'm just going to throw out like the random parts that I remember, but I believe it was a bunch of people in Japan and they were protesting something. It wasn't like a, a particularly antagonistic protest, but they were protesting in the middle of the street. And then as soon as the lights began to turn red, they'd all like, calmly get out of the street and let the traffic pass and then as soon as the lights turned red again they'd get back in the street and continue their protest and they it was just like a very ordered clockwork version and like they were being very careful and not inconvenience traffic and not you know commit any sort of like break any laws in the process and it was surreal because i've never seen anything like that they weren't they weren't protesting traffic protocol um right (laughs) i found sometimes it's such a foreign concept though I've been around long enough, actually. I guess I, I do give a hand these days. But, you know, at the end of a party, it's time to clean up. And, you know, we'll slack around in the States. And, you know, dishes are still there tomorrow. We're um, in Japan sometimes blinking. Like, whoa, everything's clean. What happened? <laughs> um, when, when we were living in America for a few years, um, my, my friend was house-sitting a, a guy's house. He had a bunch of, like, cool, like, monster movie, punk rock memorabilia. But... Yeah, my wife was there, and then she felt compelled to just clean the place for two hours. Like, no, you you really don't have to do that. So <laughs> I had a friend living in a punk rock house. I was like, no, I, you cannot come with me to see him because she would try to clean that, and it wasn't going to happen. <laughs> that happens in the States, too, but it's usually uh, meth involved. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, but yeah, yeah, yeah. The, just what you're talking about with the demonstration doesn't sound surprising to me. Um, you know, 10 years, 11 years ago with the, the earthquake and tsunami and uh, Fukushima and all that, like there wasn't any looting or anything. So it was, it was pretty wild. You know, people actually chill out. I mean, there are there are flaws in Japan for sure, but I would say that's not one of them. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I, I, how far down your note list are you? I, I got three other notes and they're all just kind of like fun ones. So okay, I was also... Those. I was getting really strong uh, Castle Grayskull vibes when we started getting like close up shots of Maleficent's castle. Uh, just, okay. and I took some screenshots again because it looks so close. And I kind of did a, a left and right comparison, especially because they start using like a green and purple uh, lighting um, aspects on it. Like the lighting sources are like these fluorescent purple and green lights. And it just reminded me of some old He Man scenes. And it sure enough. I did make a Castle Grayskull note. I'm okay, like, I'm glad. I'm, I'm, glad I'm having did. trouble spotting it at the moment for some reason. But uh, no, I definitely was like, expect you could just get He-Man to save you from this problem, you know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, also, what else? There was, uh, sorry, what were you going to say? Oh, and when I was five or six years old, my, my father bribed me to jump off the diving board by like, okay, if you dive, I'll get you Castle Grayskull. And that's how I got Castle Grayskull. <laughs> and, a, and a broken arm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah you could only need one arm to play with gray skull right <laughs> uh what else oh so one of the the ones that stood out the most to me and i've i loved this aspect of it but that final scene where the prince kills maleficent dragon version there's blood man like we actually see you know a, an unharmed animal that gets pierced by a weapon and blood comes out of it and then they die and it doesn't cut away and it doesn't happen off screen. Like you see all of it essentially happen. The only time that it leaves screen is when she converts back from her dragon form into kind of just like 
a pile of ash or clothes. But I mean, you you see the violence there, and and the, you know, I can't think of a lot of other Disney movies where they they kill the villain and you see blood come out in the process. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm trying to think if there's anything there. Oh, Black Cauldron. My, I don't know if that has it or not because it's been so long, but that would certainly be a place for it. I mean, there's some movies where people get hurt and they draw blood, but I I can't think of death scenes that involve blood in them just because it's so foreign to a typical Disney formula. I'm sure they're out there. So we, maybe we need to dig that up. I figured out why I couldn't find my Grayskull note. It looks like I forgot to save a large portion of my notes because my last note is "gotta fuel up your minstrel <laughs> with, <laughs> with alcohol." So I'm like, "Oh, that's that's not near the end of the movie." So, oops, I must have. Uh, yeah, I was I was late night viewing last night. <laughs> oh, and and my my final note too, a little bit of Rosicrucian and alchemical references, but Maleficent cast a spell towards the end of the movie too when she casts it over the castle um that, that blocks the prince's way to get in and he has to kind of like hack his way through that spell that she does uh is so shakespearean it, it sounds very much like the the boil and boil toil and trouble you know i have a new wing of a bat kind of mm-hmm. thing um which is interesting because that same cadence and that same sort of word patterning that essentially is hearkening back to not exactly alchemy, but like the the first sort of like witch doctors, and it's because they would call their things, you know, the the eye of a newt. I think was like a mustard seed, and it was just because that was how you used to protect the the kernels, you know, secret recipe back then. Is that you just didn't tell people, oh yeah, it's you know, it's barbecue rub with mustard seeds. You'd be like, oh yeah, it's bat wings and newt eyes. So you'd have to know what those code words were in order to like replicate it. So that same kind of aspect of obfuscation um, kind of makes its way into the way that Maleficent is casting these spells. I just thought it was an interesting thread. Did you happen to write down her thorn spell? Uh, Not the exact spell, no. Because you said Shakespearean. I'm wondering if the cadence you're mentioning is like the whole iambic pentameter thing, which would give it that. All, all I'm finding is a um a forest of thorns shall be used to uh, I'm finding a YouTube and maybe they print it as well because I'm wondering if that cadence... well and I'm, and I'm not talking about I'm not talking about the original spell it's after um it's towards the end of the movie as the prince makes his way out of captivity and he's heading towards Sleeping Beauty she casts a spell over Sleeping Beauty's castle that she's in oh that's sorry if that's making that noise cadence. It started to play the actual movie. Yeah, this is what I'm looking at, and I'm wondering if you were here. Okay, here we go. A forest of thorns shall be his tomb, born through the skies in a fog of doom. Now go with a curse and serve me well round Stefan's castle, cast myself. So I think it is in that iambic pentameter, which might, you know, you know, spell saying things. That's how it works, right? So um, it seems not just Shakespearean, but the actual cadence. Um, do you know the other very famous writer who also almost always wrote niambic pentameter? I wasn't prepared for this trivia. No, what? Who is that? Doctor Seuss. <laughs> <laughs> Doctor Seuss and Shakespeare used the same pattern. Uh, so he's casting spells. Yeah, in a way, that's yeah. Chewy chew for chewy chew for chewy chewing. That's what this goo goose is doing. If you choose sir, choose sir, do sir, it's the same rhythm that he uses. So. Yeah, I I have to do fox and socks a lot because I teach English. <laughs> I think there's a thread. There's actually a thread here, man. There's a thread worth pulling on. 
No, but I mean, that's an important thing, the, the cadence of spells. That's why the words, you, why you use certain words, why it might sound weird, because it must follow this pattern. So, yeah, I, that's my point. I think that is on to something a little bit um, baked in, but maybe that you know magical language requires you to use certain cadences, right? So maybe if you use a different kind of spell, you use a different cadence. Well, we're going to have to try and, and conjure something up on one of these live. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, yeah, and then we get that in other things. Like Dune has like the voice. So that's sort of thing. But the, the power of vibration, right? Everything's vibration. So I, I think that actually is a, a... Obviously, we were researching Sleeping Beauty and not that. So I'm, I'm walking us into a dead end at the moment. But it's a, you know, maybe there's a door at the dead end at some point. <laughs> I like that because I'm, I'm going to keep an, uh, an ear open for more of those iambic pentameter sort of examples, especially when it comes to people doing the the spells and reciting them. And I think it basically comes down to big, small, 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 and everything's rhyming couplets. So you, they always have to rhyme and you don't rhyme the next part. So you, you don't change the rhyming scheme, which is also, I think, an important thing of it. And, but... and I wonder, too, if is Shakespeare the one that linked that cadence to it being magical through that famous line or did that pre-exist uh and when i say shakespeare i obviously mean francis bacon because shakespeare was not a real person <laughs> I, actually i i was about to bring up francis bacon anyway I, I was about to say i don't mind shakespeare can be a real person but uh i definitely like the idea that the 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 magic man was actually writing all this stuff <laughs> Or, then, or like a, a a group of people that were kind of it was almost like a I, I almost like it's like a Jack the Ripper you know he, he wasn't killing people but it was like a group of these nobles that were doing shocking things and putting it out under someone else's name. I'm always a fan of the Crowley was Jack the Ripper theory, but <laughs> <laughs> but that's just because you know let's 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 throw. Some he would have been on the tail end though. He'd be on the tail end of of the Jack the Rippers because it would have started before he was born. No uh you might be right i it's been a while i didn't watch from hell so <laughs> you got to read the comic anyways wait, wait it's a million times ever? better than the movie actually i think i did read the comic but a really long time ago yeah <laughs> it's it's not a quick or easy read but it's a very good read yeah it would have been about the same time i read mouse same thing <laughs> not a quick or easy read yeah not it's, yeah it's, it's not like if someone's like hey i'm gonna go read a, a comic book this weekend you're not thinking mouse <laughs> um if that's the the end of your list I, I guess we'll start wrapping things up for today but uh did you have any final things you wanted to throw out for for sleeping beauty uh, not really. I, I had this book that I just haven't been able to get all the way through yet, but it's it's been, oh, of course, it's not going to show up, but it's called um, The Initiatory Paths in Fairy Tales, Alchemical Secrets of Mother Goose. And uh, it doesn't necessarily do a fairy tale by fairy tale, but it explains these common archetypes that, that are going over. And great examples are Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, Snow White, because they follow the same kind of path. And they hearken on something that I've mentioned in a few of our previous ones that also shows up in this one a little bit. And that's the rabbit uh, symbolism and the underworld and the, re the recycling because in Alice in Wonderland, it's, you know, follow the white rabbit and that represents Persephone and it re represents Easter. And in this movie, there is a scene where the owl comes down and it pulls these two rabbits out of a log. So it stood out to me as that rabbit 
being linked to Ishtar and Easter, and they were kind of like two twin rabbits. So I always wonder if that was a nod to the original DNA of the Sleeping Beauty story, where she has the two twins, and those twins represent this nature cycle. Because again, in 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 the old secret mystery cults, the rabbits represented that, and they represented um you know Ishtar and Easter, and that's where you get the Easter Bunny. Uh, it was because of this link between the fertility gods. Uh, and goddess and the rabbits just just with owls my workplace i just got throughout has a bunch of owls in it the original the main school tons of owls the, the old boss really liked owls or or maybe she was part of a secret society no i think she just really liked owls <laughs> then we just opened a new one and even then not so many owls but there's still one big owl painting on the wall so whenever i see that of course it's a guy that likes to think about this sort of thing i'm like there's an owl again <laughs> They get a bad rap. A lot of people see an owl, especially conspiratorially minded, and it's like, oh, Bohemian Grove, Illuminati, get you know, guaranteed. Um, but man, I, I I really do, especially these Disney movies. I try my best to find the owl symbolism. Um, what in Snow White? There's a scene when they're inside of the little shack that she's staying in with the seven dwarves, and there's just the faintest outline of owls carved into the staircase. And there's just countless conspiracy blogs out there that's like Illuminati confirmed. There's <laughs> owls in the staircase. And I, I mean, I, I watched that scene over and over and I counted them and I looked for other symbols around them. And really, as much as I want to look into it, it, it just seemed like a cool design with owls in it. And yeah, it so far, <laughs> yeah, it, it seems foresty. It's a cool animal. They represent cool things. It's got a, a cool aesthetic to it. So even in this movie with the owl, I mean... I'm I'm hurting myself trying to bend in ways to be like, oh, that's a Bohemian Grove reference. It, it just doesn't happen yet. It will in some of the movies coming up, but at this point, it doesn't happen. Although we, you mentioned earlier MK Ultra, and I want to note that this movie in particular, Sleeping Beauty, is kind of at peak MK Ultra time, you know, like early 50s through late 50s. So a lot of the the conspiracy references where you know disney and mk ultra were hand in hand around this time it's harder to disprove those outright you know that like mk ultra didn't exist yet so at this point they do and there's a bluebird in this movie and there's all sorts of other sort of mind control references so well yeah i mean that's the thing and it doesn't have to be like there's a you know someone you know snidely snivelly in the hanging out an animation putting this thing on purpose it's kind of like hey we got a note could you do this yeah sure why not <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> put a bluebird in please okay i can do that uh one of <clears throat> one of the most interesting scenes i think ever in any movie um is the scene of maholland drive where they switch out the idol singer <laughs> have, have you seen maholland drive in the 90s i saw okay. it and i i remember being so confused by the ending <laughs> anyway there, there's a scene where it has like the starlet you know duh, 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 like trying someone basically normal trying to sing and then someone comes in and says she's not the one get rid of her and then they bring in like this blonde like you know like the presidential model sort of lady <laughs> and, and she just starts instantly starts bopping and you know i saw in the 90s i was like oh that's weird what what does that even mean and i'm like oh yeah okay I think I got that. So <laughs> that that's actually definitely one David Lynch movies. I, I think are, I, I think David, you know, it might just be subconscious stuff too, but I, I think there's something to look into in a lot of David Lynch's movies for symbology, things like that. But that scene in particular is like, that's how Hollywood works, isn't it? <laughs> 
I'd love to go back through David Lynch's catalog again. I think I, I watched Twin Peaks a few years ago from beginning to end. It, it's interesting, although it doesn't it doesn't hold up the same way that I I was hoping it would. Uh, and that's probably might be sacrilegious to even say out loud. So I apologize. No, no, people people keep Lynch saying to me. Fans. People will keep saying to me, "You got to watch the new Twin Peaks." It's like it's really good. You'd love it. I'm like. But I'd have to watch the old one again first, and then I'd have to watch a new one. I don't, I don't have time for that. I'll, I'll go watch. You know Lost what? Man, <laughs> the old one, I, I, I love so much. The things that they started to hint at, like the little secret society that they had, like the oh I yeah, it was called the, the Black and like, Lodge. Man, yeah, the Black. I mean, every every time I would watch an episode, I was like, "Tell me more. I want to learn more about this." And they just never delivered on it, and it still pains me to this day. Like, I still have a little bit of contempt for not delivering on all these like really cool promises that were made no and um, i but... when i want to go for twin peaks i'll go directly for Firewalk with me which doesn't even match the tone of the show um <laughs> as the famous scene of david Bowie walking into an office and just screaming that's like ah not saying anything just screaming it's great <laughs> so very disturbing movie because uh, the show is not like disturbing in that way but the movie is Ooh, yeah <laughs> leaves a weird taste in your mouth not a nice wholesome one like a movie like sleeping beauty just <laughs> sorry trying to make the segues work there we're, we're definitely not talking about the the original versions where the king comes in and just does what he needs to yeah we just mentioned those a little bit yeah that that's that's creepy i mean even in my notes i, I didn't know that because i was writing things like um oh he's been waiting, waiting 16 years to roofie his royal friend that's the king and the, the two kings but uh then oh that didn't happen oh yeah, yeah. I, I wrote a few notes along those lines, not knowing about those versions of the story. So <laughs> now I'm like, oh, my notes don't sound good anymore. Um, this is Saturday, I guess, or Sunday. I think I'm doing these on Sunday now. But hey, what's going on on your weekend? That, that's that's what you can plug right here, right now. <laughs> oh, uh, actually, that's a great question, because this week I just published a new coloring book called the modern American Lovecraft adult coloring book on Amazon. And I believe that's also available in Japan uh, and it's 30 pages of just really cool Lovecraftian inspired coloring book pages. Uh, you might've just told me a Christmas present I'm buying for someone. <laughs> I mean, please man, that there's, I've got four out now total. So I've got the Lovecraft coloring book. I've got American cryptids coloring book. I've got one called the cult of the all seeing eye, which is just got a bunch of cool, sort of like pyramids and aliens and reptilian designs. And then I've got one called Paranoid Portraits. And if you're at all a fan of occult and conspiracy theory stuff, it's just, I think it's like 25 different portraits of people like Aleister Crowley. We've got Baphomet in there. We've got Manly <laughs> Palmer Hall. We've got Aldous Huxley. Uh, just just cool stuff to, you know, stocking stuffers that no one's going to expect uh, and they won't see coming. <laughs> the stocking stuffer you won't see coming. And you can and find all those on paranoidamerican.com as well as on Amazon. All right. As, as for this podcast, we, we do podcastio podcastius is on Patreon, which is even if you don't want to throw a dollar in to keep the lights on, it's a good hub for all the, the stuff we do out here in Japan, which uh, Matt and Luke Sci-Fi Sanctuary with Sci-Fi Movies. Time Enough podcast where we talk about the Twilight Zone. And for the gamers... There's Luke Love Pokemon, Monster Mash, which is about Monster Hunter, and the Game Game Show, which is four British guys screaming insults at each other. So there's all of 
I don't know if I remember. I, I don't know if I always mention all those at the end of these shows or not, but I did today. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go. I'm going to go sleep for a hundred years, I guess. That's not true. I'm going to take a shower and go to work, but, <laughs> but make sure you lock your doors. <laughs> In Japan, I don't have to do that. 